time. We have one more week of our new members class. I want to uh, say what a wonderful class we have. I'm so delighted for everyone who's, who's coming into the new members class. We're going to be adding two new flags to the narthex, a flag for, uh, for Kenya and Bulgaria. Uh, dear uh, sister, part of our church for some time, and, and we need to represent. So we're going to have that flag up uh, by next Sunday. I uh, invite you to please open your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 can be found in your pew Bible on page 61. Now, if you recall, way back at the beginning of the new year, we started a series in Exodus chapter 1, and we went all the way through to Easter Sunday uh, with the crossing of the Red Sea. So on Easter Sunday, we had the deliverance story of the Old Testament the crossing of the Red Sea, Exodus 14, on the very day that we celebrate the resurrection, resurrection story of the New Testament, of the new life, the new covenant with God uh, in Christ. Then we had a series called Growing God's Way, and then last week our guest missionary uh, kicked off our series in the Ten Commandments. Uh, for those of you who asked why isn't it online, uh, we did not publish that sermon online, uh, for protection for the sake of the missionary family that we're supporting. They're serving in a part of the world where uh, if, if his name was searched and found out, they might be uh, uninvited to return uh, to their place where they are serving God faithfully and serving their congregation. So that is why we could not do that with commandment number one, but today is commandment number two. So to set the scene, the covenant people have been freed from slavery, safely delivered across dry land through the Red Sea, rescued by Almighty God and led by Moses. Now, 50 days after Passover, with weeks of grumbling by the people and grace upon grace of the Lord, they finally come to camp at the base of Mount Sinai. Now, I think we should cut the Israelites a little slack for all that grumbling. Now, here's why. I just returned from a one-night camping trip, and I feel like grumbling. Yesterday, Jonathan and I went to Isaac Watts for his first scout uh, outing trip. I spent one night in a tent on the ground, and I got about three hours of sleep. So if I'm grumbling by the end of the sermon, if I seem a little cranky, bear with me. These folks were out there for 50 days. That number 50 should ring a bell for us. It's been 50 days after the Passover. The Jewish people still celebrate uh, Shavuot, the revelation of the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. 50 days is also known to the Christian church as Pentecost. We celebrated last week, the birthday of the church. So you can see again, the tie between the Testaments and God's plan. So just imagine for a moment the scene. Thick smoke and flashes of lightning surrounded the mountain from which God called Moses forward. And Moses went up the mountain, and God spoke to Moses saying, Consecrate my people. Prepare them, for I am about to come down on this mountain but do not let them even touch the base of this mountain, lest I be unleashed upon them. So Moses went up, 
And he came back down with the law, the commandments. And the commandments emerge out of God's own holy nature and character. They are the way that God has communicated to his people what God has revealed, a revelation of how to live, how we might know and love God and know and love one another. These laws, these ten words, tell us not only how to survive for the Israelites out in the wilderness and eventually into a nation, how to survive even today, but how to thrive. They are expressions of God's perfect will for our lives. Not as a way of getting right with God, but as a way of pleasing the God who made us right with him. And what did Yahweh say? Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The Lord their God reminded them first and foremost what God had done to deliver them, to rescue them. And then God tells them what is expected of them. God reveals the Lord's deepest desire for their ultimate destiny. Number one, do not worship false gods. You've come out of Egypt. There are gods of the sky, gods of the earth, gods of the water, gods underground. Do not worship false gods. Worship the one true living God. And number two, do not worship the one true living God in false ways. In false man-made images of the maker, man-made created icons of the creator. These are idols. The second commandment has here, as you look at the text, a precept a penalty, and a promise. The precept, the, the general rule is, is pretty straightforward. Do not make any idols. Is anyone here with a King James Version or you grew up with a King James? What does it say? Do not make for yourself graven images. Being made in, in God's image, in God's likeness, we humans have a great capacity for many things not the least of which is the capacity to create. God has given us the capacity to create. We are makers. We are fashioners. We have the great abilities to create things and even to create things in our own imagination in spectacular ways. God knows this perfectly well. God created us with this ability to create and to imagine. And God hardwired us 
With that ability to create and to imagine, he hardwired us with a deep desire to worship. An old pastor of mine was fond of saying, uh, birds fly, fish swim, dogs bark, and people worship. We're bound to find something to revere, to glory in, something transcendent, something beyond this place, beyond what is just in front of us. God knows this. It's who we are. It's how we are hardwired by the Creator. So the first precept, we must reject every false god in order to worship the right way, the one true God. And the second precept has everything to do with that right worship. We must worship the one true God in the truest way, in the right way. Now, why, why these precepts? Why these rules? Because otherwise, we would ruin our lives. That's why. And that will become very apparent as we go through this brief message today. It will ruin our lives not following commandment number one or commandment number two. In fact, if you get number one wrong, all the rest you could just forget about First and foremost, this is about your relationship to your creator, to God. God has revealed something of God's own character. The idea of of being jealous. It's an interesting insight of, of, of a desire for an exclusive relationship with us. Our guest speaker last night spoke about this idea of, of jealousy last week, but I want to tease it out a little bit more in context. Again, Exodus chapter 19, Moses goes up by himself, kind of the precursor before the law happens in chapter 20. He goes up to talk to the Lord. He goes up to listen to the Lord. And the Lord says to him, if my people obey me, if they live by my design, do you know what he says? He will say, they will be my precious people. The Lord God says, they, among all the peoples of the earth, will be my treasure. Think about someone that you treasure. That's a beautiful thing. And as we heard last week, this kind of jealousy isn't born out of resentment, but out of zeal. Like the exclusive love a husband has for his wife, and a wife has for her husband. That's why throughout Scripture, idolatry is so closely related to adultery. For cheating on one's loved one with substitute images. Only these days, it's easy enough to, uh, to hide or delete our web browser in form of idolatry. But that's for another sermon. But there's a relationship. And God wants it to be exclusive. He wants all of you. That's the precept. No idols. And an idol makes the infinite God finite. Makes the invisible God visible. Makes the omnipotent God impotent. The all-present God able to fit into your pocket. The living God a dead piece of wood or pottery like a garden gnome in your yard. And makes the unseen, mysterious Almighty God, 
something that you can fit on your mantle. An idol makes the one true living God who speaks silent, never to say a word again. So the precept is followed by the penalty and the promise. Idolatry, false worship, God warns, will negatively impact to the third and fourth generation. And just imagine, in, in your, in, think about in your own life, in people's lives around you, when their worship is redirected, other things become the ultimate things. How does that play out in that person's life? How does it work for their family from generation to generation? God says, ultimately, they'll turn from me not even to love, but to hate God instead. And then we have the promise, far greater than the penalty. Yes, but it's all by way of warning. The idol worship is dangerous. Why is it so dangerous? Because idols are so alluring. They're so easy to create. Everyone close your eyes and imagine with me that we're transported to a beach. Beautiful beach by, by the ocean. And there's no humidity and there's no bugs. And you have your favorite beverage and your favorite summer music. See how quickly that happened? Instantly we create that image. Like, I want to go to there. That's why it's dangerous. Because it's so easy for us to create and to manipulate. And for us then to silence God in our minds. A God who has other priorities for us than our priorities. Let me get back to the beach. Listen closely. We were created in a way that only God can truly and completely satisfy the longings of your heart. The longings for glory, for something transcendent. Yes, even something to worship. There are many examples of idolatry all around us. Lee mentioned a couple. The kids mentioned a couple. As they were talking, I was thinking about, is my iPhone becoming a bit of an idol? I have to have it. If I lost it, I'd freak out. Lord, help me, anybody, a witness, anyone? For those of you listening, people are nodding. But there are many examples around us and throughout Scripture, things that people bow down to or worship or kiss. I think about the Stanley Cup finals coming up. And what do all those uh, mean, burly uh, hockey players do once they win that trophy? It's been around for 100 years. They kiss it. This thing's been kissed by more sweaty men for over the years, but they kissed that trophy. The NBA championship, they're going to kiss that thing. I read in the news this week that the president of Turkmenistan, neighboring our missionary friends from last week, the, the nation honoring uh, next door, he honored himself this week. Last year, he fell off his horse and nearly broke his, his neck in the process. But this week, he dedicated a seven-story tall gold horse statue with himself on the horse in his own honor for everyone to bow down to in his growing personality cult. And on my trip to Israel, in Israel, in Jerusalem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, also known as the Church of the Resurrection, the venerated site of Calvary, where Jesus was crucified and said to be buried and resurrected, there, right as you enter into the church, there's a stone just inside. 
It's called the stone of anointing, believed to be the spot where Jesus' body was laid to be prepared for burial. Even though this tradition began in the years of the Crusaders in the 12th century, and even though this particular slab of stone was installed in 1810 when the church went under reconstruction, that makes no never mind to the pilgrims. People frantically gather there on their hands and knees with scarves and hats that they've purchased from the vendors, rubbing them, rubbing them, rubbing the stone. It's, it's as clear as glass, rubbing it. Why? To transfer power into those scarves and into those hats to bring home to loved ones. Those are idols. I hope they're not bringing them home to sell them. But there are examples of that as well. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 44 of, of his prophecy, he mocks the self-delusion of idols. Who He says there's a man who cuts down a tree and with half the tree he makes a fire to bake bread and cook meat and with the other half he carves an idol and starts worshiping it. And there are many other examples in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, when he speaks to the Athenians who were crowded with idols, they had so many idols to so many different gods, they even had the unknown God just, in, just to cover all of their bases. And the Apostle Paul didn't wag a self-righteous finger at the people. No, he took this as, a, as an amazing opportunity to talk about Jesus and preach the gospel. But friends, for, for our sake, for you, for our church, there are far more subtle examples of idols than totem poles or dashboard hula girls dolls or gemstone crystals that people wear around their neck, or at least they used to uh, back in the 90s in Santa Cruz. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory that we're always coming up with little gods made in our own image that suit our fancy. Rather than worship God for who God is and how God has revealed himself to us, we so easily reshape God until God is safe and manageable and above all, quiet. Some of us love that verse about God being quiet. That quiet voice. Shh. Only speak up when I really need your help. The rest of the time, remain quiet. So let's clearly define an idol. Because someone here is thinking, I don't have totem poles or gnomes. Well, maybe one or two. I don't have idols. Let me ask you some questions. An idol can be anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart, your imagination, more than God. Anything you see to give yourself to more than giving yourself to God, seeking what only God can give you, is an idol. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life will have meaning. Then I will know I have value. Then I will feel significant and secure if I have that. Tim Keller, the writer of Counterfeit Gods, 
The empty promises of money, sex, and power, and, and the only hope that matters, writes, there are many ways of describing that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. What are you worshiping? See, an idol in our lives might be a good thing, but it just keeps taking and taking and taking. We can never quite get a hold of it. How can we worship God the right way without idols? Well, rather than make God into our own image, we need to be remade into his image. God does this by bringing us into a personal, saving relationship with Jesus, the very image of God. And when he moves in, when he sets up into your house, into your heart, he takes over the place. His influence is everywhere. We're not going to get there too quickly. The middle part of Exodus is about the law. The last part is about the tabernacle. God dwelling with his people. God wants to dwell in your heart. How can we know God's love dwelling in us so deeply, treasuring God as God treasures us in such a way that it would release us from from these idols that, that crowd God out? How can that happen? Well, first and foremost, we need God's help to get our priorities straight. That's why we have commandment number one and commandment number two prioritized at the top of the list. Last summer, we planted an herb garden. Any, any gardeners here? Anyone plant, plant a, a garden? We did that for the first time last year. I learned a few things about herbs. I like herbs. I like to use them in all sorts of things. And particularly, I like mint. Does anyone ever plant mint? Mint will take over your entire garden in a matter of a few weeks. And so this time around, I, I got wise and prioritized And when we planted everything, we took the mint and we put it in its own pot and put that pot in the ground. Why? We get plenty of mint, but it won't overgrow all the basil and rosemary and all the other stuff. Something in your life that you need to set aside, maybe? Fence off, maybe? We also have a, a, a giant hosta plant. We call it King, King Kong, because it's so huge. Now, that plant can't be contained. And Cheryl said, get it out of here. Move it someplace. And I dug that sucker up. It must have weighed 50 pounds. And we moved it to an entire other uh, part of the yard out in the front. Is there something in your life that's becoming like a giant gorilla in the room that needs to be kicked out? We need to set our priorities straight. That's what we need to do with idols. Even good things that that are becoming ultimate things in our life. But before we we place limits on them or before we move them out, we need to be able to identify them. So let me ask you a little bit more. Can I tease this out? Get a little bit bit deeper. The true God of your heart is whatever your thoughts go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind? Where do you spend most of your money? Money flows most to where the heart loves the greatest. So where do you spend your money? Where are you living Monday through Saturday? Answer for yourself, not Sunday school boilerplate answers. 
What matters most to you? A good way to discern your priorities is how you respond to unanswered prayers when, when you're frustrated with your hopes and your dreams not being fulfilled. How do you respond? I'm so mad. I can't believe it. This didn't happen. Whoa. What is it for you that brings up that kind of emotion that's unfulfilled? What is it? Is it a relationship or the desire for a relationship? Is it some possession, a, a house instead of an apartment? A sports car instead of that old commuter car? Is it your kid's grades? Is it your kid's acceptance letter? Is it your kid's future career that you look to? Is it your health or the health of a loved one? You can't hand over to the Lord. If that's threatened, you'll completely lose it. Is it your sports team? Is it a promotion, that brass ring at, at work that you can't quite seem to grasp, that you know you deserve? These things, good things, might be idols. Some of the most spiritually painful times in our lives are times when our idols are being threatened or even removed. When that happens, you can either despair or you can reprioritize and put those things below God. Now, I warn you, if you ask God for help, you say, right now, Lord, I, I, I think I'm identifying some idols. Can you please remove them? I'll warn you, God will do that, and it will hurt. And you have a choice. You can either be humbled by that experience, or you can become embittered. And you can pass that bitterness, bitterness down from generation to generation. You'll either turn to God and, and enjoy a new life, freed up, emerged. Like, why, why does that thing take so much of my time and energy? I was so worried about that. And now, it's not that big a deal. Or you can become resentful. God, you knew I wanted it and you took it away. I can tell you from personal experience, identifying idols, removing them, reprioritizing them is not easy. So be patient with yourselves. Moses was up that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights before he finally came back down. And you know what happened when he was up there? What happened right before he came down? What were the people doing? You want to know what they were doing? They were forcing Aaron, his brother, to make an idol. Collect all the gold, melt it down, and make a golden calf. Because they were impatient. Because they just could not wait. And that's what can happen to us. But thankfully, we have a greater mediator than Moses. Our mediator isn't running up and down a mountain anymore delivering messages. God knows perfectly well how we were designed and wired. He knows that we need something to worship. He knows we have a need for an icon, and God has given it to us. God's exact likeness, the invisible, most holy, most otherly, one true God made into a perfect image in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
And we don't need to be afraid of thunder and lightning anymore. Because of Jesus Christ, his righteousness is, is imputed on you. That, that means it's like a, like a big overcoat just enwraps you. And he says, come on in. No need to imagine anymore. Come into the throne room with me. God does this. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. He knows we need it. And he has provided it in the most exceptional, unbelievable way. Hebrews 1, 3, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the power of his word. And so John can write, we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only come from the Father. The Father has done this. Jesus says, I will not lead you astray. He said to Philip, Philip, don't you know me? If you've seen me, you've seen my Father. Friends, we are made in God's image. And through the cross, that's blank, empty now, because Jesus is reigning in heaven, we are now born again into the image of God, being restored on this side of the waters of baptism. And now we together are God's living, thinking, speaking, breathing image, relating human beings, a people after God's own heart, being made holy by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The image marred by the fall is being restored in the church of Jesus Christ. And we're not left to wonder for transcendence or something to glory in, something even to bow down to and kiss God gave us an image of God's self, the God, fully God and fully man. Where do we find the image of God when we worship? The image of God is found in the creation he has made in his own image and is being restored, his kingdom coming forth, employing people of every tribe and every nation from Kenya to Bulgaria to Montgomery County, to bow down and worship. Don't let an idol hijack your relationship with God. For myself and for you, I pray the admonition of 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Friends, let's stand, take our hymnals, and turn to 148 and sing, At the Name of Jesus. Jesus.